Welcome to RetroTube Obscurios, the spin-off podcast in which we look at some of the stranger, darker and less remembered corners of the archive television universe. It's Ginger Day on RetroTube as I'm joined by writer and archive TV blogger Hannah Cooper. Hello Hannah, what exciting things have you been up to lately? Mainly staying at home and watching TV, how about you? (laughs) Not too much different from that. (laughs) <laughs> Funnily enough, I thought that might be the case. Yes. You've just, uh, you've recently finished your voyage through uh, Blake 7. I have, yeah. I'm still sort of coming down from it, really, I think. I'm still coming down from it, and I saw it in 1981. You've been blogging Blake 7. Yeah, it's been huge fun. And before I did it, I didn't realise just what a big fandom Blake 7 had at all. And until suddenly all these people appeared and, and were excited to chat about it with me. <laughs> it's one of those things that stuck around, hasn't it? For something that's now 40 years old yeah and i wonder whether i in a similar way to Doctor Who, the repeats on uk gold helped and you know then dvd releases give it another rush and now uh, it's on brickbox and so that's given it another rush all these little things yeah uh, allowing it to pop up back in people's memories or bring new people on board we watched the four-part drama serial The Nightmare Man, an adaptation of the novel Child of Voginoi by David Wiltshire, broadcast on BBC One in May 1981. Hannah, can you describe the premise of The Nightmare Man? I feel like it's hard to, to do it without giving away the end, which I'm probably <laughs> going to, because I spent half of it trying to figure out what on earth was going on. I think I could say it's, it's some people on a small remote scottish island and the inhabitants start getting killed in quite grisly ways and no one quite knows what's going on yes essentially they think it's a maniac on the loose don't they well i i spent um, a while not sure if it was a man or a creature and they definitely kind of sort of build that up the noises and the soundtrack they're just horrific at times. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It was sort of a gurgling, snaffling, and you, it, it, it just, I just didn't think that could be human. Yeah, it does really do a good job of keeping you guessing, doesn't it? And sort of all the different characters throw out different suggestions of what it might be and like is it an alien is it like a turtle hybrid that someone's been making uh that someone's been breeding on the island there's so there's so many things thrown in but by like part three that uh yeah cannibalism um suggested and there's no real way i think until the final episode to bring in like the, the submarine that shows up and it it feels like too many weird elements that's like it feels like the characters are just guessing as much as i am watching it yeah which i think is good i think i I think they would do that so if you get something like doctor who or sherlock holmes where you have a a central character who knows a lot about everything who can get there really quickly and go by the clues and go ah it's probably one of these two things and is really confident about narrowing it down but but these characters we're with are generally ordinary people so they're just guessing wildly you've got like a couple of policemen a local dentist and a person who works in a chemist i think i was thrown as well because i sat down for this haven't got a clue about it at all i said you know i hadn't heard of it at all before Mm. So I didn't know what I was going into. And, you know, it does that thing of setting up the normal world in the first episode. And, oh, so this is a nice, like, lovely-looking town. And it'd probably be quite picturesque if it was, like, July or something. Yes. Um, they clearly filmed in, I don't know, October. But I just didn't, wasn't expecting something. You know, my brain wasn't going to, well, like, it's obviously an alien or anything like that. I think there's got to be an actual normal explanation behind it, but it threw in all those weird elements. It did, yeah. Well, a bit of context. This is, this is from 1981, and I think 1981 was quite a spectacular year for British genre cult television, science fiction television. So we also, as well as The Nightmare Man, we had Dave the Triffids, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Series D of Blake 7, Series 2 of The Adventure Game, and the second half of Series 18 of Doctor Who, including Legopolis. So there's a lot going on on TV for people so inclined in 1981. Spoiled. Absolutely spoiled. Yeah. And I do remember it quite well. I, I remember 
I watched all of those things. and But the funny thing is I, I remember them being quite different, like being from different periods of time. Because I actually watched this with my mum. Or at least I have a memory of watching this with my mum quite happily. So what time did this go out? So this went out at um, 20 past eight in the evening. I feel I'm relieved to hear that because I'd be so worried if it went out at like seven o'clock. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's still pre-Watershed. It's, it's very grisly for something that's yeah effectively goes up to the nine o'clock news it's all quite calm up until like um the cliffhanger for that first episode and then it that's it's horrific although i feel like you could probably uh, just be unsettled from the title sequence alone the, the, I, I love the music it's so so creepy <laughs> It's, it's quite queasy, isn't it? It's sort of, it's a bit like Triangle or Howard's Way or that kind of thing, but just with the darker edge. And it looks like, it doesn't look like Doctor Who. It has a whole different feel to it. We should also say, actually, at this point, that um, it has a bit of a Doctor Who pedigree behind it, doesn't it? Yeah, there are quite a few con- and connections from um, the cast and, and, and the, and the and production side. Yeah, uh, primarily Robert Holmes was the writer and Douglas Camfield was the director. So you've got you've got the cream of the crop. Graham Harper is in there as one of the. I think he's the production manager. Yeah, that's so right. Future, future star director in the production manager role. You know, you're getting good stuff if you've got Robert Holmes writing and Douglas Camfield directing. Yeah, I I watched this with my mum and I sat there quite happily watching it. And I was surprised to find out that this was actually earlier than Day of the Triffids, because Day of the Triffids really disturbed me. Oh, right. And The Nightmare Man, I think... I was six, so I was very young. <laughs> I was not far this too to young to be watching this. No. <laughs> I was, my parents were just watching it, and I was just on the sofa or something like that. It was scary, but not in a way that horrified me. You know how some things, when you're little, you're like, oh, okay, this is scary, but it's meant to be scary, and I'm quite, you know, I'm happy with the fact that this is a programme that's scary, and I, it's tense and exciting and all those things. Um, Day of the Triffids went out on the other side of the summer, so this went out in May, and I think Day of the Triffids was September. So I remember Day of the Triffids from being much, it seems a lot older to me, it seems more old-fashioned in a way. And it's possibly the fact that there's film work in Day of the Triffids, whereas this is entirely shot on that kind of really murky... 1981 videotape. It's very murky at times, with the fog as well. Yes. Yeah, it's quite difficult to actually see what's going on at times. Yeah. This is a lot less intense. It's it's essentially just a community and a murderer where Day of the Triffids is an entire apocalypse and it's, you know, diseases and blindness and killer plants and it's a whole other thing going on. So I can I actually see why I found Day of the Triffids more upsetting, whereas this was just scary and exciting, but not not a thing that would have given me nightmares particularly despite the title i suppose you don't actually see a great deal it is it is done by the the atmosphere the directing the soundtrack like the music's very dramatic at times that first cliffhanger i love how it's done that you don't see whatever's attacking him you see his reaction to it yeah it's very it's there's a lot left to the imagination isn't there yeah there's, there's very little that you actually see there's a lot more in the fourth ep- the final episodes it's four episodes long yeah you see a lot more in the fourth episode i suppose even in that final episode it for me it felt quite like reassuringly familiar because it, it feels like you've got units together uh, um, I wrote that as well. Yes, it goes all unit in episode four, doesn't it? And I, I love the unit sto- story. So, I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm, this, I'm just in, in my element here. It's, it's the only episode really with like any action. It, it's quite the contrast to the previous episodes that have been all atmosphere. And the only episode with any plot. <laughs> yeah. Those first three episodes are essentially just a procedural. So it is just a group of people working out what's going on. We've got quite a large cast though, I think, for just over an hour and a half. Because we meet Celia Imri, her boyfriend Michael, the dentist, the Canadian, um, Dr Simmons, and we, we meet a couple of the police officers. But then I don't think it's till episode two that we meet any of the Coast Guard lot. No. And we get the dad um, from Bread. The dad from Bread and Reg Hollis from The Bill. Aha! <laughs> So I was deli- I used to love the bill. I- I'm always delighted to see somebody from the bill turn up in something else. I really liked bread as a kid. 
<laughs> so I'd, ne- I'd never seen him in anything else and I thought blimey if Freddie's cleaned himself up well he doesn't look quite so rough <laughs> yeah Ronald Forfer and we normally do this when Heather's here but he's our secret scouser for the week because yes. he's putting on a he's putting on uh, a Scottish accent I'm not Scottish enough to know whether that was a good accent or not but I would have found it fairly convincing I like it like this it's more peaceful yeah he doesn't have that many lines so you, you, it's hard no. to pick him up too much it's ostensibly a Doctor Who story without the Doctor, but actually it feels very different. Like that opening shot of the boats arriving, and like I said about the music, it it feels like a grown-up drama. It feels like Howard's Way, them arriving on the boats. No one ever arrives on boats in Doctor Who. Oh, that's a good point. And pe- people on boats and, and glamorous middle-aged ladies in fur... Uh, and there's lots of boring marriage talk a bit later and yeah yeah lots of grown-up chat about things so it does feel like a grown-up drama and this this monster mystery has been imposed from something else because it has that that blood red point of view that you get with a lot of doctor who monsters as well yeah i feel like the blood red is selling a lot at times when we've we've yes not said any blood it's the tiniest (laughs) smear on uh that the first uh, victim's body that we well, we see like a hand, yeah, and a bit of blood. Um, we don't really see. Do we see any other bodies? Because that's the only body I can actually think we see. We see the Canadian chap. Oh, uh, yeah, because that that's the second. They, they basically re- almost repeat the shock horror of him for the second cliffhanger. Yes, that's it. And and they they say that he's been torn apart and things, and it's worse than the first victim. But you don't actually see that. He he looks fairly intact. He just looks slightly, a little bit of blood, not very much at all. So there's, yeah, it's a lot of it's in the dialogue and in the imagination. I really liked how we had that for the first victim when Michael comes to the police station. And I think we've already had by then that, you know, he's ex-army and he's he looks like he's going to be sick from what he's mm. seen. And then they start talking about... Well, it's, it, it's the inspector when he's on the phone and he says, and it is just a body, it, you know, it's not all there. Yeah. It, it, it's very much playing on your imagination, yeah. Yeah, and they do a good job of when he actually goes to the mortuary and she's under the sheet and is clearly like only half a leg there. He's the only one who seems off put by it, though. The rest of the locals are, are, are all just, they can't <laughs> have many murders there. No, the police are very jolly, aren't they? Yeah, they're all quite just matter of fact about about mm. it. You'd have thought like this has got to be their finest hour because <laughs> what else is going on? They like they this. I love like they say she's not local. Like and they tell just from her hands because she's not been mending any fishing nets or digging yes. potatoes. <laughs> that is how the island is summed up. Despite the fact that we don't see anyone doing any of those things on the island. They're actually all like they're driving boats. They work in a tourist shop. They run the hotel. The um, policemen. They're not. No one's actually doing uh, these things. Yeah, you know, it tells us that there are people off fishing and apparently digging potatoes on on the island. I do. I mean, I don't think I can't imagine Celia Celia Imry's character mending nets and that kind of thing. She's mending cameras and developing developing photographs and drawing maps. So she's she's hardly like a manual labourer. The doctor later on still says. Like she's an island girl, you know, she's quite naive. Well, that was a bit unfair of him. Like she's she's had a few few years off. I think she's probably got further from this island than you are. I don't know if it's it's possibly there. It may be deliberate in the writing that it's their projection of her rather than like the actual reality. I don't know if the writing's that subtle. He's a bit he's a bit fatherly, you know. In this, he is a bit. Yes, um, it's very much the kind of sort of the man to man talk moment when about marriage in the last episode of of this we talked about the owl service which is very very subtle and layered and very carefully thought about and very cinematic but this is almost the opposite and not in a bad way but this is definitely tv there's some characters there's a situation they're going to do stuff we're going to be entertained it's not going to be there's not going to be amazing shots or anything like that but it's going to keep us gripped and it's going to be very simple and straightforward so it is very straightforward yes (laughs) our first episode we how it very straightforwardly getting introduced to everyone and i like how people introduce themselves to one another so that we can get introduced to them as well <laughs> yeah that's a good thing about having strangers on the island is there can be lots of introductions yes so should, we should mention some of the actors because we have some we have, we have a quite a star-studded cast so uh we have celia imry who we've already uh, mentioned with an accent what are you doing here i don't think i've seen celia imry in anything 
apart from comedy before. So that was quite a surprise um, um, for me. First to see her in it, and then with a Scottish accent. And we also have James Warwick, who uh, I'm sure was in lots of things I know him best as being in Earthshock, of course. You've done all you can. Don't upset yourself. Being all manly. He doesn't have the moustache in this, but uh, he's playing Mike Gaffigan, who I think is essentially the hero. Yes, he's quite... Him and the Colonel both have that same boy's own accent, I want to say. That. They do. They have both have very actorly voices. Yes. So it's quite hilarious when they're actually talking to each other because they both have... Hmm, so you're new around here, are you? This little island, and they're both talking to each other like this. Hmm. Michael, this is Colonel Howard, who's staying at the hotel. Michael Gaffigan is our local dentist. How do you do? How do you do? Are you staying long? At least two days, I gather. Michael used to be in the army. What did you call it? Short service commission. Oh, what were you in? Parachute regiment. When it was over, I then came out and did my dental training. Wise man. It feels almost far too much of a coincidence that they have both ended up on on this (laughs) island as opposed to, you know, a Geordie or something showing up. Yeah, Colonel Howard, who is this obnoxious colonel who's hovering around annoying people. He's played by Jonathan Newth, uh, who was also in Day of the Triffids. So he got around that year. And his Doctor Who connection, he was off in Underworld. But as I haven't seen Underworld in about two decades, I have no idea what that means. I've never seen Underworld, so... We have the the Robert Holmes double acts, of course, so mm. there's lots of fun, amusing banter, particularly in the first episode, before things go horrible, between Celia and James Warwick. So they have their banter. Uh, a line I wrote down was, I was not ogling her, I was checking up on her tartan. <laughs> she a little strychnine or something or something please i really only dropped in to ask about dinner tonight tonight it's not saturday does saturday have to be the only time we eat together the point is i have it on good authority that the hotel got a crate of fresh duckling on this morning's boat mm. and sheila anderson was on the same boat who the blonde woman who bought dove cottage she usually eats at the hotel when she's here i don't think she can cook oh yes i vaguely remember ogling her for an entire evening I'm deeply hurt. I was not ogling her. I was checking up on her tartan. <laughs> so uh, we also have, on the other side of things, another Robert Holmes double act. We have the police uh, inspector called Inspector Inskip, played by Maurice Roofs. I really liked him. He was really good, wasn't he? Well known to um, Doctor Who nerds like us as... Um, Stotts. Starts, that's it, of Caves of Androzani, but he's one of those people that's in loads of stuff and being reliably rugged and craggy. Uh, And also James Cosmo and his moustache. It's a magnificent moustache. And it's a Scottish drama in the 80s, so of course James Cosmo and his moustache are in it. He's he's obligatory. There's a lot of drinking goes on, especially (laughs) from the policemen. I love that. I love how 80s it is that... You know, anything happens, he brings out the tumblers and they have a whiskey. The amount of whiskey he must be going through, because <laughs> this is just set over like a few days, but he's got whiskey. I love that he's got whiskey the lo- and um, the Coast Guard have rum. Yes. That's the thing I envy about the 70s and 80s, is just people in offices drinking whiskey all the time. I felt like I got like a bit of a shock like becoming an adult and, and starting to realize that this doesn't go on anymore <laughs> i just st- still expected like executives you know got offered a drink and it, it's not it's, it's just tea or coffee now there's a time where it it, it seems to just be like it's with your sherry as yeah. well so there's clearly a standard for executives to have but then if you like get to md level you get like a whole hostess trolley and you've probably got an ice bucket to have gin and tonic or something as well. So, yes, we have um, Celia's. Celia's got the tourist shop, so she pretty much does everything in the village. And it seems that that's where everyone goes just to flirt outrageously. You know, commerce has ruined these one simple islanders. Really? Miss Patterson doesn't look ruined to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, when we first see Michael with her, and he, he goes in, I just thought, you cad! <laughs> <laughs> Not realising at first that they're a couple, just thinking like, oh, he's just like, he, he's obviously not local. He's just on a hot holiday. She says something like, uh, can, I, can I help you or something? And he says, or something, please. Yes. <laughs> the Canadian ornithologist turns up and he's got his arm round her and he's flirting outrageously. And then at the same time, 
Colonel Howard turns up and he's flirting outrageously. They have a real Canadian in it. It's not an actor. It's not a British actor doing a Canadian accent. Uh, he's a real Canadian, and that makes it seem quite grown up as well. That gives it that slightly exotic air. Especially considering it's quite a small part, really. He, he has he, really he just has that uh, one speaking sort of scene when he comes down um, asking about his camera. Because we don't really see uh, see him with it, uh, anyone after that. Yeah, that's it. He doesn't do a lot, does he? And then he's up just at the end of the episode when he gets attacked by the mysterious killer. Only a few of the actors who are doing Scottish accents are actually Scottish. And I don't know how good the accents are, but I think they were fairly authentic in that everyone except for Inspector Inskip has a kind of Highland accent and mm. Maurice Reeves has a Glaswegian accent. It's like hot fuzz that he's the big city cop who's been sent out to the small island. So he's got he's got more of the Billy Connolly accent and everyone else is a bit more sort of with the Highland accent like that. I love the idea that he's an inspector and I, I don't know why this island needs an inspector. <laughs> no. But I love the idea that he was in Glasgow and like just having a proper rough time of it there, solving all sorts of different things. And they said, we, yeah, we're really pleased. We want to promote you to inspector. There's one catch. <laughs> and... It's he has to go off to this island to be the inspector, <laughs> and you think that might make him bitter or something. And but but no, he seems perfectly happy there, and, and he doesn't even get excited when he's or anything. He's got a big murder spree to solve. Yeah, he's just clearly like right. Let, let's crack on with it. <laughs> I think he's having a lovely time up there, just drinking and bantering with James Cosmo's moustache. You see, there's no motive for that carnage up at Simmons Camp or at Dove Cottage or the sheep. Mm. It's like some snotty-nosed little kid turning the wings and legs off a fly just for the hell of it. I blame television. Some people see the sound of music once too often and something snaps. It's a lot more local hero than it is Wicker Man. Everyone's really nice. I felt like I got Wicker Man vibes at one point. You know, I was like, oh, yep, small Scottish island. And then quite clearly, no, actually, no, everyone here is really normal. Yeah, they're normal and they're friendly and they're lovely. I think if they did it now, it would be rife with drama and it'd be setting up all these sorts of tangled plots and tangled intrigue and all that kind of stuff. But this is actually quite quite normal and low-key, which I think is good because it gives the, the, the threat room to breathe. It's not overwhelmed by plot. It is just some people going about their lives with this horrible thing happening in the middle of it. Yeah, there's a couple of times where they mention about the season being over, the tourist season's over, and I think it's when one of the policemen's speaking to the woman who runs the hotel. Yeah, how, how's business been? Uh, oh, not that good this year. Oh, will you say that every year? And no, nothing follows up on that. It's just a, there's no, someone's out for revenge, they desperately need some money. No, it's it's just, no, yeah, that's sort of how it is. We're just sort of getting by here. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I like the fact, it's quite refreshing that it's not a whodunit. You set up all these characters, but no one's ever suspected. There isn't, it doesn't kind of descend into that paranoia. I th again, I think it would, would be more of now, but I find that quite refreshing that it is just a procedural and there's, there, there's no finger pointing. There's no obvious suspect at all. Yeah, he's too, too much of a madman. That's why like, episodes two and three, I think, I found it so baffling that because there's just nothing to point at at all. I did start getting a bit suspicious of the colonel. He's a wrong one. I think it's when he, he comes to the police station and he offers to help out with the search. And he's really keen. And it, it just seemed like really odd. He's listening on the conversation on the phone um, as he goes out the door. He hasn't had much involvement in the story. He's just kind of been lurking in the background a bit up till then. Mm. But then I was like, oh, I feel like you're acting suspiciously and you're the stranger here. I feel like sort of my my knowledge of drama telling me something's not quite up yes, here. Uh, you kind of, he sounds the same as 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 Michael, and Michael's so lovely and normal. So you kind of end up seeing him similarly beforehand up to that point. And I like how the grisly murder when they're actually discussing it, particularly the police are discussing it. It's all very matter of fact, which makes it feel like a grown up drama as well. It's one of those things that in a grown up drama anything can happen. Like, all bets are off in terms of how nasty or scary it's going to be. If you're watching Doctor Who, for example, and I mention Doctor Who a lot, A, because I'm interested in it, but B, this is what it's closest to, I think. Yeah. And for many reasons, but just in terms of, I think, themes. You know the parameters, but yeah, if you're watching something that's on at 20 past eight, <laughs> then anything might happen. <laughs> 
There's a couple of lines I like. Uh, the inspector, when he describes the first victim, he describes her, her clothes as, as being spread around like a tinker's washing, which I've never heard before. <laughs> no. And when the colonel goes to speak to the uh, hotelier at the bar on the, uh, the night, and they've just found the body, and they don't really know anything, and who it is yet or anything, she says to him... Uh, it's bound to be a woman, isn't it? It's always a woman. Yes. Which I, I did, did like. I thought it was very good. And yeah, if you find if you've been, um, you know, a, a body in a not a nice way discovered out out um, on the golf course, you probably presume it's been something nasty happened to a woman. Going back to the idea of it being like Doctor Who, I found it an oddly generic idea. So in the way that Survivors, the TV series Survivors, the Terry Nation one, reminds me a lot of Dave the Triffids with the triffids taken out and the blindness taken out, so you just have people in a post-society world dealing with disease, effectively. And this feels like Doctor Who with all the Doctor Who stuff taken out. So you can imagine Tom billowing around the golf course and the moors and the woodland with his scarf looking cold and exciting. And then, yeah, you get the, the monster eye view and the heavy breathing, which is a big Doctor Who staple. But apart from that, it's all removed and it is just a fairly generic drama but that's not a bad thing i again i don't know if that would get made now because i think it would need more of a hook other than just there's a maniac killing people i feel one of the things that you probably do more now is i think it'd probably be spread over longer episodes yes the one thing i thought about was that we don't get to know any of the victims that well the first woman we see her when she gets off the boat and that's it and I say we only really have that one scene with Dr. Simmons before he goes. And then we've got the Coast Guards. And we get to see them a, a little bit more. We have all, all the main characters that we sort of get to uh, meet. So Celia Imra's Awari, uh, Michael the Colonel, and sort of the, the main police officers. We spend time getting to know them i feel like if, if one of those had gone in episode three we might have a bit more impact because we've got to know them a bit more yeah i think so i think now you, they would kill off at least one of the main characters i think they'd kill off james cosmo's mustache possibly <laughs> or they'd do something like we hear about the inspector you know traveling back to look after his mother and stuff like that because so we've had sort of his backstory and we something like that you know if he was going to get off we'd get that built up a bit more. yes he's one week from retirement <laughs> yes. that's what it would be <laughs> yeah i like how it's it's um a sort of they are building up this picture of a mystery maniac but it is all in it's mostly in the dialogue you're hearing about it and and as well a bit later on when there's a there's a mysterious soldier on the island they see a man that's come down in a parachute and he's running around with a machine gun and he's wearing khaki you never see him until he actually appears later as a character but you don't see glimpses of him you just hear about people who've seen glimpses of him which it builds up a, an image in your mind more so you're you're using your imagination more i think even when they get the photographs from Dr Simmons camera and his audio tape and they, they sit down with them, which I thought was quite a gruesome idea for them to do anyway. <laughs> yeah, switch the lights off, make it cosy. I thought we were going to get like a whole reveal, but we don't. We get to see some of the photos and then we've just got their reactions whilst we continue hearing the audio. I do remember that's one of the bits I remember quite vividly in seeing his shiny suit in the in the photographs and the fact that his head seems to have things sprouting from them so he looks like an alien and then they find the um the, the surprise spaceship at the end of episode two as well which i remember really vividly this small weirdly shaped apparent spaceship <laughs> that completely threw me <laughs> i thought we were dealing with something mysterious on the line where i just could not add up how on earth that was going to come into it and it doesn't at all throughout episode three mm. we don't find out anything more about it and then it's just all brought together in, in part four yeah you find out that it periodically vibrates and that's about it and it's very light like when you initially see it you think oh that's a bit of a ropey prop and then they pick it up and you go oh they're not making much effort mm. to make it seem heavy but actually it's not it's supposed to be incredibly light uh, so it does work quite well that it's made from this mysterious substance that's, that's really lightweight i do like that it's all on location i think that helps there's i, I hadn't expected that and even though it is on video it definitely there's so much of it outside as well like it's it's not all like in the pub and the coast going on in, 
in the police station. There's a lot out on the the moors and sort of in, in, in the streets. I think I've, it was filmed in Cornwall. Yes, I looked at Yeah, I was a bit disappointed. I thought it would be up in the Highlands <laughs> yeah, of Scotland. I, I kind of guessed that it wouldn't be. Yeah, so it's uh, apparently Port Isaac in Cornwall, which is where they filmed Doc Martin. Ah, I thought so. And the movie Fisherman's Friends about a sea shanty group. There's a shot in one well, of the first... The first, in part one and it's like sort of down a narrow street um at night when the sort of policemen are sort of going and knocking on doors and the colonel walks past the police car and he sort of half pauses to listen to the, sort of the radio stuff that's coming out but there's that shot down there i was sure i recognized that from doc martin so yeah probably it must be the same place ah, it's quite fun that you get two such entirely different things yeah because it's all dark and foggy in in this shot and there's some sort of sort of steam or smoke being ploughed out from somewhere you can see to add to it doc martin is always filmed at the height of summer so very different i associate it with being a really sunny show it's very sort of oversaturated this is so gray and grim yeah watching it like in early february in like a little rented flat i felt how cold it was (laughs) Yeah, it's incredibly grey. It feels like it conforms to every you know, Scottish island stereotype with the weather, the drinking. <laughs> and even though the tourist season has, you know, is, is just finishing, it must, it must be like September or something. They end up with this horrific storm. But it seems like January. It just seems so yeah. grey. And I think that's partly to do with the video. And a thing I was talking about in our um, Tripods episode, that it, there is that 80s outdoor video um which has that slightly desaturated quality and it's not the sharpest either i think it's it's probably lower quality than the studio cameras watching michael playing golf (laughs) (laughs) on that golf course you can see the wind battering him (laughs) and i just think how are you getting the ball anywhere at all it's just gamely gamely trudging on with the scene on his own as well he's not even got a partner <laughs> probably because there's like seven people on the island to play with i think one of the the reasons this seems more modern than day of the triffids even though it's a few months earlier is possibly the idea that it's all filmed on location it's all done on videotape because as far as i remember with day of the triffids and it's been a little while since i've seen it that was the more traditional film is used outdoors and then when they're indoors it's a set we're in the studio, we're using the multi-camera, so like Blake 7, essentially. Whereas this is this is a much more mobile, so you, f- you do feel like you're really there in amongst it all. So it does, it does have that slightly more modern feel to it. I like the line... Maybe it's wearing some kind of protective clothing. Have you noticed something? We've all started saying it. Yes. I think it shows just... A few of them have seen the bodies by that point, and... There's the sheep attack as well, we haven't mentioned. I think that brings it more to you start, starting to think. There's no logical reason behind the attacks at all. And people who attack humans on a killing spree don't tend to go off and attack sheep as well. Yeah. Generally, it feels. So that seems to throw them as well. And I think that's the point where they start guessing just randomly of, of all the different things it could be, of alien invasion cannibalism and just started to run through ideas at that point because they just so haven't got a clue yeah they're just they're just fishing for anything really aren't they when the colonel eventually turns up in his military outfit and he takes charge and and um declares martial law and he's saying that there's going to be other soldiers coming on the island they're very resentful of this and i'm not really sure why because if this was happening in my community i'd be overjoyed to actually have the military come in (laughs) i think it's because they're so suspicious of him they ask him some very you know simple questions to verify his identity uh, and he he just can't answer them at all yes but even so like it'd be quite nice to have some well-equipped men with guns (laughs) when there's a murderer around it would just be a bit more reassuring but just everyone is furious with him for turning up with soldiers. Maybe it's just because he's so obnoxious. He is really obnoxious, though, isn't he, Colonel Howard? Yeah, he, he doesn't come across well at all. You know, he, he flirts with, with Celia Rimmery and then that's it, downhill after that. <laughs> yeah. There's the one bit where the, they mention that um, Fiona has been out helping 
because she she knows the island better than everyone anyone because she's a cartographer so she's been out leading leading them and helping them track and he says hardly work for a girl though from what i hear i know <laughs> i wrote that down as well <laughs> i don't know why she wants to stay on this island who are sort of full of men who are calling a 27 year old woman a girl and <laughs> say that she's naive and yeah she seems uh, really competent and actually it is nice to have a female protagonist who's good at stuff and she contributes usefully she's not just there to ask questions so that we can have an exposition she develops the photographs and she has ideas and because she's a cartographer like i say she knows the island better than anyone else so she's able to essentially be their tracker and their guide so she contributes a lot a lot of different skills and she's not ever uh you know sort of screaming woman either no she she doesn't scream once sometimes what seems to happen when you have this wonderfully skilled woman and then it all goes out the window because she screams just a bit of blood no she's together all the way through i mean obviously they're all scared it isn't that and i think sort of i think a bit with modern writing with newer writing it can go the other direction that they can't bring themselves to have a, a scared female character so she's just really snarky and eye-rolling about everything and really bold and sassy Mm. but i think they have a nice balance here that like she's good and she's competent and she doesn't scream but she's appropriately scared for the situation yeah and you also have actually michael as the one coming home traumatized and Mm. falling in her arms yes that's true yeah he's the one that goes wibbly and then he goes over the top and wants to marry her (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> more more boring marriage talk this is the kind of thing that like when i i mean it was it wasn't very exciting anyway but particularly when i was little it's like oh boring i was gonna say it feels like padding it it feels like it slows things down a bit i suppose it's the way we have of finding out how you know how long they've been seeing each other and we get their background yes it's character stuff isn't it yeah and i th- i mean i think something like this it's necessary to have lots of padding because it is so light on plot. Yeah, and the only other time really you probably could have had it apart from when they're at home then would have had to been you could have to try and squeeze it all into their sort of dinner um, in the restaurant when they're too busy snarking about the colonel. I love the bit when he's the colonel's in the phone box and he's doing his kind of John le Carre coded talk. That was sort of a bit that was unintentionally funny. House of Chicken, still free range. <laughs> all that stuff, which is hilarious. Yes. Mother asked me to call. Mother knows best. How is her chicken? Still free range, I'm afraid. Then forget the chicken. I've arranged for the egg collection. Can you close the coop? Yes, I can see to that right away. Excellent. We'll RV at 2300. <laughs> I wrote it down. Just, I love all this mother chicken bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone overhearing that conversation would go, oh, there's nothing suspicious about that conversation at all. <laughs> it was just after that point where the colonel definitely looks like a dodgy colonel at this point. <laughs> he really does. But it's only part three. We've got, we can't get any information at all before part four. Exactly, yes. It's for our benefit. I'd have been so impressed if anyone at all managed to guess the real plot of this story before part four. Yeah. You can't say it's predictable. It's certainly not predictable, is it? No. I did start... Well, we got part way into part four, just having a hell of a lot of like trying to guess at stuff, and just, it seemed like a stream of consciousness for me. Of, it's, is, is the colonel trying to steal the submarine? Is he using it to smuggle stuff? Is he an alien? <laughs> that would be great if he was an alien. He, he says your police rather than our police, and they oh, sort yes. of catch him on it. And but then I was like, is he an alien? And then sort of, then thinking of the of sort of the time period, I did then sort of jump and, and think, oh, is he a Russian? But his accent was so good. I said, even when I thought about the Russian connection, I still wasn't wasn't getting it. I was still thinking, is this an invasion? It feels like ah. a very odd way to start to invade the uk and not really have the cold war has been progressing up to this point it's got, I, it was quite refreshing that it wasn't that and they weren't unfriendly russians they were just trying to sort out the mess that had been caused it wasn't it wasn't an invasion it wasn't them being aggressive or sneaky or anything like that particularly no although it doesn't come across well with and get on with with most of the islanders he's not a bad man he's I find him quite interesting. He even says when we've got the whole biological warfare sort of details come out, he's not happy about that either. That's not his idea of how 
war should be being fought. He's seems to have been landed with this clean-up job and he's not morally happy about it either. Uh, and I, I actually liked him a lot more once he he was outed as being Russian. Yes. He just felt a lot more likeable. He was just less sleazy and that's kind of like, ugh. I, I warmed to him. Everyone must have the antitoxin. Tell the doctor that is vital. I think you could have started earlier. The moment you trace the Volgenoi here. This virus took years to develop. My instructions were not to hand over the antidote unless I was sure that a biological incident might occur. And now you are sure? No. But I will not take the chance anyway. Thank you. I don't like these things. Wars should be fought by soldiers. I don't know what it was. He was just in character as this this kind of like oily colonel. I wonder if that's what the real colonel's like. And actually, he was doing a very good part of acting the colonel. Um, And so if anyone had described the colonel, someone had gone, oh, he's a bit of a sleaze. They'd go, oh, yeah, that's the colonel, yeah. (laughs) That's Colonel Howard, all right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, don't let him touch you. (laughs) But we're slightly ahead of ourselves because the end of episode three has that quite spectacular attack on the Coast Guards, which is where it really goes up again. It's the first time we have proper actual action. Yeah, it steps up then, and we go straight into action and pick it up afterwards at part four. Yeah, the, the cliffhanger is right on the action. We have Freddie Boswell and uh, Reg Hollis fighting off this terrifying, shiny creature. I was going, come on, Reg! And I still think of Reg, even though he's a Coast Guard, I couldn't get it in, quite in my head that he wasn't one of the police. <laughs> <laughs> just so used to it. He was in the bill for a long time. He really was, yeah. I was really rooting for him, and yeah, and he seemed like he he was quite a nice character. He's very young in this, and he seemed very scared, and I felt quite sorry for him, and really wanted him to make it. And I like I liked all the coast cards. They all seemed, they had their little characters and everything like that. Is it where you? goes out the window yes he tries to climb out the window but that's his mistake yeah i was so annoyed with him i was like why why wouldn't you just lock all the doors and lock all the windows you know he the creature is out there why are you going out there and climbing out the window of all places yes a weird decision to make he was just panicking Come on, Reg. The bit where he hits, the, he shoots the monster with a flare and then it's on fire and rolling about in the grass to put itself out. That's the, that's the bit I most remember from seeing it in 1981. That's the bit that stuck with me. It was a very innovative idea to, uh, to attack him like that, actually. Yeah, he should have done more of that rather than just trying it once and then climbing out of a window because he had a lot of flares. So, it did, yeah, I did quite enjoy episode four particularly because it's 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 a completely different pace isn't it yeah we've got all the revelations and we've got the soldiers landing on the island and then running around and we finally get to see the keep calling it a creature but obviously it isn't it is a man just a sort of hybrid man Hmm. it's pat gorman ah makes sense from from the build Uh, we also meet a new character robert vowels is playing Lieutenant Carey, and he's all also has a very actorly voice. Yeah, just mucks it up with his salute. Yep, does the does the salute mistake, which is a bit like um, it's a bit Great Escape, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, I would never have noticed. I suppose that's why we've got to have Michael's backstory of having been in the army. This was what I was thinking. Yeah, that's that's the main purpose for it that he would recognise that it's not a British salute. Mm. But yeah, I I would have been absolutely clueless. They could have just gone on and gone. Oh, they seemed like nice men. Bye. <laughs> and yeah, so the final revelation is that it's a submarine with a nervous system that plugs directly into the pilot, and then he forcibly unplugged himself, which is what sent him insane. Which is a really dark idea. It is because you are essentially given the image of this radiated man ripping a chunk of his own brain out and the weird thing is like i i watched this age six and i remember understanding that i I was clueless about lots of things when i was six but i remember having a fair idea that this monster was actually a, a pilot who was part of his spaceship and had torn out these things connected to his brain and that's what had sent him mad that seems strange that i understood this age six it does i feel like I would not have got the concept of the nervous system at that point. I do think it's a really an interesting idea and makes you think of the backstory to that, that they had to recruit people to do this. And you think, are, are they confined to doing this job and nothing else? It seems like it because they have the helmets grafted onto their heads. Yeah. 
and logistically and you know human body functions and stuff there's there's got to be a lot going on there and accommodations made for this to feel worth the effort to a extent i suppose it also feels a bit of its time in that now we'd probably just have something where you could connect with a computer by touch hmm. and we wouldn't so much go for that organic type of thing i think it feels very kind of soviet union or what we might have it wouldn't work so well if it was like an american pilot that had washed up but it feels like that kind of thing that we don't know what's going on over there in the ussr they could be up to anything and yeah it's a kind of dark and shady they're not treating people quite right sort of thing a bit like north korea i think it might be a north korean sub now if they remade it yeah i think so so overall what did you think to the nightmare man i really enjoyed it i want to go back and watch it all in one go now because i was during it i found episode two and episode three a bit like sort of ploddy like i split it up and watched one each night and whereas i i really loved one we've got partly through through two and we're not really finding out anything even though i'm normally such i i don't like binging stuff this is one thing where i'd actually prefer to to binge that because it still only adds up to two hours i do like the providing stuff to play off your imagination and i think it's quite interesting dark twist i think so yeah i think it probably isn't something that that would be made now it's based on a novel but i imagine it's quite a lightweight pulp thriller uh, so it's very much of its time which is nice it's nice to sort of still be able to see these things and see the things that were being made back then and it, it certainly gripped us at the time we tuned into every episode wanting to find out what was going to happen so you don't need a really complex plot to keep people tuning in it's just effectively a horror film done as a four-part series instead really so you're a lot younger than most people who would be into archive tv you wouldn't have been around when most or all of this stuff was made originally so what is it about that era of tv that appeals to you i think certainly at the moment i'm quite interested in a lot of 70s stuff because of what was going on in the world at that time. It's interesting knowing that economy and other things mm. were going dreadfully, and yet you have some wonderful escapism um, on television. And I also like the way that, you know, I'm curious sometimes to see how television reflects that wider world or doesn't. I've enjoyed stuff like, late 7 and 1990 lately where they've got dystopian futures and it's quite interesting seeing what a 1970s idea of a dystopian future is it's always one where people still smoke I found. yes and still wear flared trousers i like that era more so probably than probably than the 80s because being born in the 90s that still feels slightly familiar whereas 70s and 60s as well it's that bit more removed it's vaguely familiar things presented in an unfamiliar way sometimes and realizing that it's actually not that long ago yet it's very different yeah i think often the 60s seems more modern than the 70s can like the mid 70s that really abigail's party kind of high 70s and the the clothes they wore and the design seems like an alien world sometimes i think if you look at people wearing suits and a bit more, you know, less out there stuff, certainly in sort of the early to, to mid-60s. It doesn't look that different it doesn't, no. to the 90s, just, you know, the suit styles change slightly. But yeah, when you get to the 70s and the, the sort of the hairstyles and the big flares and the big collars, and it seems, yeah, it seems like an entirely sort of like a parallel universe almost. It feels like someone had a dream sometimes <laughs> that was the 70s. And I like it when we glimpse more sort of everyday stuff in the 70s. And you realise that it wasn't just some of the stuff you're seeing on top of the top of the pops level. And there's probably a sort of, a sort of drama level. But actually, you know, there were in everyday life, there's a mixture of it. You know, particularly younger people generally in embracing these kind of things and you'll find them in you know sort of more hippie-ish outfit or you know sort of looking towards a bit of glam rock 
and you'll have them surrounded by people who still have short back and sides and yes aren't really interested in in changing and i feel like that's sort of the same with sort of any era there's always a mixture of the two well having said that i think the 70s is maybe unique in that even like straight tv presenters like michael parkinson who you know wears a suit and is quite straight even he in the 70s had quite shaggy hair and a lot of these people you'd see on tv have shaggy hair and sideburns yes i think people like um like edward woodward uh who's quite straight as callan but then out if you see any uh, photos of him like on interviews or publicity photos he's a, a, a bit more out there same with john pertwee yeah he's the other person i think of for it and i like that because they're older men is the wrong word but you know they're not you know sort of 18 <laughs> 21 that younger generation are normally sort of the target for marketing and new fashions and copying pop stars and that and, and film stars and things they're middle-aged men with families who are having these you know flared trousers and giant uh, medallions and things marketed to them as well yeah yeah it's really interesting seeing john pertwee because he's possibly the only doctor who is more outrageous out of costume his hair seems bigger yes and he does seem to he he wears the unbuttoned shirt i I don't i don't know if he had a medallion or not but you kind of imagine him having a medallion but yeah he's very very glam and he probably had a medallion for whodunit yes Good old John. He seems a character. Well, thank you for coming along and doing uh, doing an episode of RetroTube. It's been really good having thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us for uh, Obscurios. And do uh, drop us a line. Uh, no, I haven't got anything to say for that because <laughs> I haven't got the email address. <laughs> Shall I look up your email? Oh, yes, <laughs> please. Have you still yeah. got it on the Twitter account? No, you haven't. You haven't even. Why haven't you got it on the Twitter <laughs> account? Why did you... it was on there? This is why no one ever emails us. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us for uh, RetroTube Obscurios. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it is retro underscore tube. Uh, there is an email address as well. I don't know what it is. Heather deals with this, and we don't have a Facebook page. We don't have uh, an Instagram. What kind of operation is this? Honestly, I ask you. I want behind the scenes RetroTube on Instagram. <laughs> yes. I'm flushed and in some kind of panic is the <laughs> behind the scenes photographs. But I'll be back uh, with another episode uh, shortly. In the meantime, thank you for listening and have a great rest of the day. <laughs> so bad at this.